The Buddhist Youth Association. Good afternoon, everyone. You are listening to the sound of universal compassion. Today is twenty-first of May. Today we will continue listen to Tenjin's previous program with the book Way of Life by Shanti Davies. Please enjoy. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3, or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with three dollars worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box eight two one four six Highland Park, Howick, Auckland, or you can phone O nine two seven one three three seven seven. Buddhist Youth Association, respectful, beneficial, empowering. Hello, here we are again with the great Indian Master Shantideva, and his text, A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. We're going through the fifth chapter called Guarding Alertness, for as Shantideva told us last week, if we are able to guard our mind, we need not worry about any external threats to us. Most of the time, we want the world to conform to our expectations and plans, but when things go against us, we get upset or angry. This is absurd," says Shantideva. "It's like trying to cover the whole world with leather so that you don't hurt your feet when you walk. Instead, if you merely cover your feet with leather, with leather, no matter where you go, the pain to your feet will be minimal. In the same way, if we take control of our mind and don't let it be overrun by negative emotions and thoughts, it will be very difficult for anything the world throws our way to create difficulties for us." In any case, as Shantideva points out, it is impossible for us to control what goes on outside of ourselves. There are just too many variables, some of which we don't even know about. Never mind, have the ability to control. We can, however, learn to control our own mind, and that will achieve the same purpose as controlling what the world does. He goes on to say that if we fail to subdue our negative tendencies through a lack of mindfulness and alertness, whatever we practice will have little effect, even if we meditate and endure austerities for a very long time. Therefore, it is better to let your reputation, wealth, and even health be ruined rather than give up guarding the mind. For as people with sick bodies cannot do anything worthwhile physically, those with unguarded minds. We'll find it very difficult to accumulate the positive potential we need to make progress on the path to enlightenment, and that is more or less where we got to in the last program. So, before we continue with Shanti Davis' verses, let's set our motivation as usual for participating in the program today, as the purpose of studying Shanti Davis is to generate and maintain bodhicitta, the mind that wishes to attain enlightenment to be of the greatest benefit to all living beings everywhere. Let's use that as our motivation. But of course, if you find that too much, then at least think that you are listening to the program to attain your own enlightenment and complete freedom from suffering and discomfort. Thank you. Now, in Shanti Davis' text, we are up to verse twenty-five of chapter five, and it goes like this: Whatever has been learnt, contemplated, and meditated upon. By those whose minds lack alertness, 
just like water in a leaking vase, will not be retained in their memory. Now remember that mindfulness is being wholly present in the current moment. The mind is not thinking of anything other than the immediate experience. So now if you have the radio on, but your mind is busy contemplating what to make for lunch, you'll not be fully present. A lot of your attention will be on food preparation, and so it will be difficult for you to remember everything that was said on the program today. Perhaps once the program is over, you'll not remember anything we've talked about at all. The quality of alertness lets us know when the mind has wandered off and allows us to bring it quickly back to the present. So Shantideva here is saying that if we do not cultivate alertness, then nothing that we learn, contemplate or meditate will stay in our mind. If the mind is continually distracted, whatever we hear will seep away like water from a leaky vase and we will be left none the wiser than before. So our basic practice has to be always on the watch for the wandering mind and as soon as we notice it is not in the present to bring it back. As Pema Chodron says, mind is present, mind wanders and mind comes back. Even those who have much learning, faith and willing perseverance will become defiled by a moral fall due to the mistake of lacking alertness. Another problem when we lack alertness is how easy it is to forget our ethics, even if we are very learned and studious. A rather extreme but quite famous Buddhist story tells of a very good monk who was hounded by a woman that became obsessed with him. She kept pestering him, but he fobbed her off until eventually she became so desperate that she said she would kill herself unless he either drank alcohol, had sex with her or killed a goat. Of all three, the monk thought that drinking alcohol was the least dangerous to his ethics, so agreed to to drink alcohol with her. However, unused to the strong drink, he quickly became drunk, and then, heedless of his vows, both had sex with her and killed the goat. Now, whether this is actually true or not, I don't really know, but it certainly illustrates the point that if we give up alertness, we can easily break our commitments and create ethical downfalls. As Pema Chodron notes, distractedness and the disturbing conceptions go hand in hand. Her take on this verse is that unless we keep our mind present all the time, we will often find ourselves getting worked up or defiled, as Shantideva says, by disturbing emotions, and that inevitably leads to unpleasant consequences. Shantideva goes on, The thieves of non-alertness in following upon the decline of mindfulness will steal even the merits I have firmly gathered so that I shall then proceed to lower realms. This host of thieves who are my own disturbing conceptions will search for a good opportunity. Having found it, they will steal my virtue and destroy the attainment of life in a happy realm. Shandideva here characterizes the disturbing emotions as a gang of thieves ready to take any opportunity to rob us of the positive potential we have gathered maybe over a very long time. And then, with weakened positive potential, we will have little opportunity of being born in a state of good fortune in coming lives. In fact, he says, if we are not alert to the danger of this gang of thieves, we will inevitably find ourselves in the middle of the unpleasant consequences we spoke about earlier. Emotional chaos, says Pema Chodron, can do us more harm than any ordinary bandits. 
With mindfulness, however, we can catch the emotional urges while they're small and disarm them before they harm us. Therefore, I shall never let mindfulness depart from the doorway of my mind. If it goes, I should recall the misery of the lower realms and firmly re-establish it there. Now what opens our minds and brings relaxation and peace, and what increases our pain and discomfort? We have to know the answer to this question and then be mindful and alert so that we can create the one and abandon the other. It's so easy to get caught up in arguments, whether with ourselves or with others, about how things should or shouldn't be, or to live in fantasy worlds, or to worry about the future or build regret for the past. I think anybody who's tried meditation for any length of time has noticed the mind being carried away like this. But if we understand that letting our minds go walk about into such rocky territories just leads to at least discomfort and often downright suffering, we will be only too willing to be more alert to what is going on and bring the mind back to the present. Shantideva talks about the doorway of the mind and says we need to post a sentry there so that we are in firm control of what goes through the doorway and what is not allowed to enter. If that sentry nods off for a moment, knowing the consequences, we have to give it a good shake-up so that it returns to a state of alert vigilance. And how is this done? Shantideva suggests purposefully staying in the company of those with high spiritual attainments and ethics, as well as developing fear of the consequences of letting the mind go where it shouldn't. He says, through staying in the company of spiritual masters, through the instructions of abbots and through fear, mindfulness will easily be generated in fortunate people who practice with respect. In his commentary on the last eight verses, His Holiness the Dalai Lama says that the impetus to develop mindfulness and alertness is given by recollecting how rare and precious this human rebirth of ours is, as well as how easily it's lost. First, we have to remind ourselves that humans make up a very small proportion of beings on this planet. If we compare ourselves to the number of animals, reptiles, insects, fish and birds, it becomes obvious that we are in a very small minority. A few programs ago, I mentioned three ant colonies, one that stretches for 6,000 kilometers along the European coast from northern Italy to the Atlantic coast of Spain, another covering 900 kilometers of Californian coast, and a third over 2.7 square kilometers in Japan. Now, how many billions of ants are there just in those three colonies, far more than the number of people in the world. And according to the Buddhist cosmology, many other types of being that we cannot see exist in the universe, sometimes even more numerous than the animals. We've spoken about pretas before, those beings whose minds are characterized by extreme want. And the Buddha said that as, as few humans as exist in comparison to animals, so few animals exist in comparison to pretas. And the ratio is similar between pretas and those in the hell realms. So you can see that humans are relatively a very sparse creature. But then, how many of us humans, just on earth, follow the Buddha's teachings? And how many of those really practice and don't just follow because of tradition or family? And how many of those who really practice 
have the current ability or will to attain high realizations. You can see that someone actually making full use of the Buddha's teachings is extremely rare. But now we have all the conditions to do so. If we don't practice now, when will we get this chance again? Almost certainly not for a very long time, because by not guarding our minds, we will inevitably lead to our out-of-control emotions to create actions and karma that will land us in much worse situations than we are in now. And then, like the animals, we will have little chance to practice anything apart from survival tactics. From time to time, I visit a website called AFRICAM with three cameras at watering holes in, watering holes in Southern Africa. You can watch animals come to drink or play in the water, and to be honest, it's quite fascinating. But one of the things that really has impressed me while watching the animals is how skittish they are. They'll come step by step, so carefully to the water hole, then stop and look around diligently for a few minutes before bending their heads to drink. But even at the slightest disturbance, they will bound up, ready to leap away if it should be a predator, perhaps a wild dog, lion or leopard. Once a giraffe drank his fill and then went to browse behind a tree not too far from the water. Some buck came down to the edge of the water, but then the giraffe, which was almost hidden by the tree, made a movement that the buck saw. They froze, and as the giraffe came out from behind the tree, took fright and sprang away into the bush. And that was only for a giraffe that had no intention to harm them at all. Now imagine living like that, always on the lookout for anything out of the ordinary that could spell disaster, and shying away, even if out of the ordinary means the wind suddenly blowing up a bit more strongly. Not only would that fear stop you from really practicing, but so would your intelligence or lack of it. Even if you were an elephant and not afraid of anything very much, your intelligence would not be great enough to realize anything. It's quite common in Buddhism to say that no matter how much of the teachings you shout into an animal's ear, it won't understand any of them, even though the animal will doubtless be very good at understanding all about creature comforts like food and so on. Now, while I was away in Darwin at the beginning of the year, the other monk at our temple continued feeding the fat cat that has made the temple its home. We give, the cat food, give it cat food twice a day, at breakfast and dinner time, and the monk has just carried on as if that was one of his regular duties. However, when I returned from Darwin, once or twice before going to bed, I gave the cat a small half-handful of biscuits as a goodnight treat. She immediately took this as the rule and not the exception, and now nearly every bedtime pesters me for something to eat. Animals are very good at things like that, but try them on creating good deeds to get a happy coming life, and they will fail nearly every time. So this human life is actually a very precious opportunity not to be wasted. However, if we could be sure that it would be with us for a long, long time, we could relax and take our time with practice. We could even postpone practicing for a while. But we have no idea how long we will have this opportunity. His Holiness says that with the preciousness of this human rebirth, we should also remember how fragile and impermanent it is. We, of course, know that we're going to die, but we think it will not come now, 
It will be in the future sometime. We think like that from day to day, and each day that we think like that, we give ourselves more time to live, more time to procrastinate with our practice. In effect, thinking like that means we expect never to die. Even when we are lying on our deathbed and breathing like a freight train going uphill, we will still be thinking, I'm not going to die now, sometime in the future, not now. Well, if I ask you now, when are you, going, when are you going to die, what will you say? Those of us with no clairvoyance will have to answer, I don't know. It could be today, tomorrow, next week, next year, or in many years. We just have no idea. So it's not as if this human life is certain. In fact, it's very uncertain. A little while ago, a gunman blasted his way through a cinema in Aurora, Colorado, killing 12 people and wounding 58. How many of those people got up in the morning of the shooting and thought to themselves, today I'm going to be in the present of death. Today I may easily die. Yet we are in the same boat. Every day in the newspapers, we read of people who die in, accident, in accidents while working, playing or just driving. How many of them expected to die that day? And how many of us say to ourselves, I could be next? We are surrounded by things and situations that could easily kill us, but we tend to ignore them and what would happen if they were our executioner, thinking, I won't die today, some other time, not today. If every day as we got up, we thought, this could be my last day in this life, what would make it most valuable? Perhaps we'd be more inclined not to waste our time with trivialities and harm. Perhaps we would be more alert to what is going on in our mind and react more kindly and gently to our, in our environment and the people in it. Particularly if we know that each of our actions has the potential to bring us more happiness in the future or more sorrow. In truth, the choice is ours. But often we give away our voting right by just following our instincts and mental impetuses. We don't pause, take the time to come back to the present and breathe. We don't examine whether what we're about to do will bring us real benefit or defeat. As Shantideva points out, following our emotional impetuses has only led us astray up to now, but we still insist in the belief that one day it will work. One day I will meet Mr. or Mrs. Fantastic and live happily ever after. One day my anger will get me what I really want. One day people will recognize me for the genius I am. And so we stubbornly repeat again and again the behaviors that have never worked up to now, expecting always to disprove Albert Einstein's famous definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Training in alertness means reminding ourselves always to come back to the present, for in fact that is all the life we have. The past is gone and we can do nothing about what happened in it and the future is still a mystery to us. So we only have each present instant of life to experience. And as Thich Nhat Hanh says, if we can make each instant of present memorable and meaningful, our life will add up to a parade of meaningful and memorable instants. 
In other words, our whole life will be meaningful and beneficial. Whereas, if we constantly live in the past, in our fantasies or in the future, we lose each present instant, the only real life we have. We trade our most vivid experience and the experience that can teach us the most for a troublesome, troublesome dream world infused with dissatisfaction, worry and sorrow. So mindfulness and alertness means always bringing our mind into the present and trading our judgments for the experience of what is actually before us. At the risk of giving you the impression that I'm a bit obsessed today with stories about monks chased by women, I'm going to tell another tale of a famous monk teacher in Tibet who was chased by a woman, desperate to become his wife. He gently refused all her overtures and in due course she had a child by another man. Feeling disgruntled by the monk's rejection, one day while he was teaching, she took the baby and plonked it down in his arms, saying in front of the whole audience, Here, this is your child. Now you look after it. The monk hardly missed a beat. Cradling the child in his arms, he continued teaching. At the end of the session, he took the baby back to his quarters and proceeded to care for it. Of course, some people in the audience were shocked that such a well-known monastic would break his celibacy vow and refuse to have anything to do with him any further. However, without rancor, he continued as usual to teach those who wanted to listen. Now, some days later, the woman felt regret for what, for what she had done and went back to the monk, apologized, and said she wanted her baby back. The monk put the child in her arms and continued with his life as he had done before. That is an example of someone living in the present and not getting into judgments about it should be like this, it shouldn't be like that. Just accepting the present and living with it in the best way possible. Can we live like that? Or at least can we aspire and then train ourselves to live like that? We can if we really want to and understand the immense benefits. Through staying in the company of spiritual masters, through the instructions of abbots and through fear, mindfulness will easily be generated in fortunate people who practice with respect. Pema Chodron has a different take on this verse. Now I'm using the commentaries by His Holiness the Dalai Lama and Pema Chodron in this series of programs because these two approach the text from quite different points of view. His Holiness, as you would expect, is more traditional, while Pema Chodron brings a quite Western view informed by her teacher, Trungpa Rinpoche, one of the first great Tibetan masters and one of the most controversial to emigrate and teach in tune with the Western mind. Pema Chodron says that in this verse and the next two, Shantideva is dealing with devotion. As she puts it, the gratitude and love we have for our teachers. Our teachers are known as our spiritual friends, but they're not friends in the sense that they bolster us when we are indulging in our emotional stories and soothe us when we're feeling hard done by by the world. Such people who continually feed our neurosis or bail us out so that we can get into trouble again, as Pema Chodron puts it, are not actually our friends. They just allow us to dig ourselves deeper into trouble. Our spiritual friends are those who help us stand on our own two feet, who reveal our neurotic mindsets to us and guide us into seeing how we can do so much better. Often their interactions with us can seem quite brutal, 
but the results are sublime. A prime example is Milarepa, a Tibetan whose master, Mapa, amongst many other difficult tasks, made him build, build nine stone houses by hand before giving him any teachings. Each time he built a house, Mapa would make him tear it down and build it again. Nine times. When Mapa's wife milked the cows, Milarepa had to go on all fours to become her milking stool. In the end, it was almost too much for him and almost drove him to suicide. But his trials cleared an enormous amount of negative karma, as Mapa knew it would, and Milarepa gained full enlightenment in that very life. And so Pema Chodron claims that cultivating mindfulness is much easier if we have devotion. Why is this so, she asks? If we have the good fortune or merit to meet a man or woman who's awake, she says, just being in his or her presence or encountering their teachings, we experience the clarity of our own mind. Sometimes, when my habitual patterns seem, uh, seem overwhelming, just imagining the face of Trungpa Rinpoche inspires me to come back to being present. When nothing else works, the thought or words of our teachers can motivate us to stay alert and not be seduced by old patterns. She then continues, Devotion, gratitude and love for our teachers bring us back to the vastness and warmth of bodhicitta. Whether or not they are physically present, we are always in their company. When we combine their wise counsel with a healthy fear of continuing to make the same mistakes, we find we have all the support we need to cultivate mindfulness and alertness. Then Shantideva goes on. I am ever dwelling in the presence of all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas who are always endowed with unobstructed vision. By thinking in this way, I shall mindfully develop a sense of shame, respect and fear. Also through doing this, recollection of the Buddha will repeatedly occur. His Holiness points out that the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas cherish all beings with the greatest love and care. If we recollect that these great beings are always looking on us with such love, then naturally we will develop a sense of mindfulness around everything we do and a sense of shame about doing something that would be ethically suspect. It is as if a very concerned parent was constantly watching over their child. If the child has respect and love for the parent, he or she will do anything will not do anything to displease the parent. This analogy also covers the point that His Holiness makes about the intimacy we feel if we think that the Buddha is always looking at us with great love and compassion. Our mindfulness becomes also a practice of remembering or meditating on the Buddha himself. Pema Chodron says we are always in the presence of the awakening mind and can tune into it at any time. The clarity and warmth of that mind is always available to us. Realizing this brings inspiration. She has an interesting take on the word fear. It's not the fear of something like a ghost threatening us from outside ourselves or in an external hell realm, but the fear of continuing our habitual patterns and the suffering results they bring. And shame, she says, is a loaded word for Westerners. It can be both negative and positive. Negative shame is accompanied by guilt and self-denigration, she writes. It is pointless and doesn't help us even slightly. Positive shame, on the other hand, is recognizing when we've harmed ourselves or anyone else and feel sorry for having done so, 
It allows us to grow wiser from our mistakes. Eventually, it dawns on us that we can regret causing harm without becoming weighed down by negative shame. Just seeing the hurt and heartbreak clearly motivates us to move on. By acknowledging what we did clearly and compassionately, we go forward. The choice is ours, and no matter what we choose, our old habitual painful patterns, or to do something revolutionary and different, we always have that choice. Even if we fall once more into an old pattern, we can recognize it, deal with it with compassion and understanding, and start letting it go. That choice is always with us every minute of the day. We can always choose to do something different, so long as we are mindful about what is happening and know how to deal with the negative energies. Not aggressively and painfully, but with understanding and compassion. And on that note, we'll have to say goodbye until next week. I hope you found some benefit in the program. Please dedicate any positive energy to gaining enlightenment to benefit not only yourself, but all living beings. Thank you, and goodbye. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3 or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146, Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association, respectful, beneficial, empowering.